Welcome to Never Delegate Understanding, the podcast that explores the evolution of the role of the patient in healthcare. Today I'm joined by David DeBronckhart, that's ePatient Dave, an advocate for patient engagement, an author of Let Patients Help, a patient engagement handbook, a patient himself, and someone who has had profound influence on me. Dave, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Where do we start? I don't know. Maybe let's just start for a minute about about you. I, I read somewhere that you said, I'm someone who almost certainly was going to be dead by now. That, that, that was uh, something that struck me. Do you want to explain what that meant? Well, simple. I, I was going through life in my 50s and I had a routine doctor appointment and I had a shoulder problem. So I got an x-ray and totally by dumb luck, a shadow showed up near the shoulder, but in my lung. And it turned out to be kidney cancer that had spread all through my body. We quickly found out that I had kidney cancer tumors everywhere from my skull to my thigh bone and in between. And for those who don't know, uh, when tumors grow outside the source organ, in this case, my kidney, that's called metastasis and it's called stage four cancer. And it is the worst kind. And in my case, I even had metastases growing in muscles. Only the most aggressive tumors grow in muscles, people say. And to make a long story short, uh, I, although my doctors correctly said there's not good data on life expectancy for people like you, I hunted and hunted because I'm the kind of guy who likes lots of information. And turns out that my median survival, half the people in my condition were dead within 24 weeks, excuse me, 26 weeks after diagnosis, um, somewhere in there. And yeah, by all rights, it's extremely unlikely that I would be alive and on your podcast, what, 12 years later, right? Yeah, that's incredible. Dave, so one question I wanted to ask you was, how did you become you? Um, <laughs> you know, how did you become e-patient Dave? Well, so there's actually some important background to this because, you know, some people think that patient empowerment or a concept like never delegate understanding is inherently a rebellion or a rejection of authority or knowledge or seniority or something. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'm somebody whose life was saved because healthcare achieved its potential. All right. I didn't know I was sick when I went in for that doctor visit. I had would have no ability to diagnose myself. I wouldn't have had any idea what tests to order or anything of the sort. Certainly wouldn't have known what treatments were available and all that. I partnered with my physicians. Now, having said that, nonetheless, I didn't expect the system to do everything. Now, as far as I knew at the time, nothing went wrong during my treatment, uh, and yet I stayed actively involved. I and my wife checked as much as we could every morning while I was an inpatient. She was checking the patient portal to see the new 
lab results that have been done earlier that morning and so on. We were just involved, which these days people call being an engaged patient. As it happens, I part of my backstory is that back in the 1960s, I was a hippie during the revolutionary years in Boston. <laughs> I myself was never a brick-throwing, marching radical, but I saw what it was for the people around me to constantly be asking, is this right? Are we doing the right thing? So 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 you mean do you mean that it it changed your orientation? I mean that was the kind of person you became. Yes. So many years later when I discovered I was almost dying, it was second nature for me to be checking and doing what I could to help with things. And there's a, a really important pivotal moment that my oncologist today says he believes helped save my life. So I went home and joined this group. And within two hours of posting my first note there, I'd gotten a boatload of practical, useful information from people who actually were either, either sick with the disease or had been and were survivors, or sometimes they were a surviving family member, just sharing peer-to-peer firsthand knowledge of uh, how to get through the disease. Now, I didn't take this and start ignoring my doctors. To the contrary, I brought their advice to my oncologist, David McDermott at Beth Israel Deaconess, and said, I found this on the internet, on this website my doctor recommended, what do you think? And he reviewed everything. I'd written it down. And he, he said, they're right in our experience. And not only was it correct that none of that was in the literature at that time, here we are 12 years later, and still none of it is in the literature. He even said it in the British Medical Journal, which was the only treatment at available for this disease that had any chance of curing me back in 2007 was something that usually didn't work. And when it had any effect, sometimes it kills the patient. Now, the typical response of a passive patient who delegates understanding is to think, okay, I sure hope everything works out in my favor. Now, I certainly hope that also, but I said to the doctors, how can I prepare for these side effects? And they said, that's an interesting question. Nobody's ever asked us that. So you notice, I first checked with the experts, and then when they said they didn't have anything, I turned to my patient community and asked them. And there I got firsthand experience that years later, as I say, my oncologist says he thinks helped save my life. The specific thing he said was, you were really sick, and I don't know if you could have tolerated enough medicine if you hadn't been so prepared. So, you know, a lot of people are concerned about your e-patient, Dave. They worry about being labeled e-problem patient, you know. <laughs> and uh, you were able to avoid being e-problem, Dave, by by drawing these alliances. Do you have suggestions to others? Because I, what I found is that that many people are intimidated by that. They're they're what I mean is they're intimidated to to ask the next question. They they feel that they don't want to suggest to their doctor that they are less than totally knowledgeable. Their doctor is less than totally knowledgeable, and that 
they're afraid it'll be understood as a criticism or doubt. Mm-hmm. And and of course, you know, many of us are trying to encourage people to say like, no, that's exact opposite of what really would represent a very constructive therapeutic relationship with your practitioner. But but still, it's a pervasive and altogether human reaction to feel that you can't question authority. How were you able to bridge that so that on one hand, you really were questioning, but on the other hand, you were doing it in a way that didn't offend and, and didn't in any way threaten your underlying relationships? How, how were you able to get the courage and, and, the, and the means to do that? Well, heck yes, courage. I mean, I was dying. Mm. You know, my median survival at diagnosis was 24 weeks. Uh, I don't, it, I was not going to allow myself to die out of fear that somebody might be offended mm. by my questions. Mm. Yeah. Right. Right. The, uh, and now on the other hand, see, this is an exquisite, sensitive, delicious, delightful example of social change where the nuances of words can make all the difference in interpretation. First of all, the first thing I do when I get introduced to a new doctor, and I've had a couple of new specialists, you know, colonoscopy, dermatology, everything, uh, I will say to somebody, to the new physician or nurse, I'm the kind of patient who likes to understand as much as I can. And I've been saying that for years since I heard of your concept of never delegate understanding. Can I ask some questions? Now, see, that is the same way that you might introduce yourself to a new coworker or somebody that you're just getting to know socially, a potential date, and so on. So you you, you lead with that. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. And now there are cases, I have heard of case, cases where somebody asks a new doctor that, and the doctor says, frankly, um, I want to be the one who asks the questions. I don't have time for that. Wow. Now, well, some people take that as arrogant. I am conscious of the fact that it's quite analogous to marriages, right? This really is a partnership issue. And the question is, can you as a patient and can you as a clinician find people that you find it satisfying to work with? If I need a new doctor, to me, this is not like calling a lawyer and saying, I need a divorce. You know, just express yourself, express what you need. Well, what I like about that is you're conveying that it's not one size fits all. We're not making judgments on the way in which people want to relate to their doctor. We're just saying there ought to be the opportunity for those who want to be more involved to do so. I mean, and then many of us believe that we can be encouraging a larger number of people to take that that perspective because we think – that it can be better for their health. We think it can be better for the choices that are made. And we think intrinsically there are some choices that you can't delegate, that that ultimately are about your preferences, values, and goals. And if you just defer to your doctor, that the ultimate choices may not be fully aligned with, with who you are. But but we ought to respect those people who say, that's just what I want. But Well, and that, another important little, little social nuance, little but it can just be world-changing. The word questioning, asking a question is not a synonym for saying, I doubt your opinion. Mm, right. No, we're not. Asking a question is just asking a question. I like the, that, that frame. I think that's, that's really helpful. Dave, I wanted to ask you a little bit just about a few other things. One is, um, 
You know, I understand soon after your diagnosis that at that time you were you were adding your data to Google Health or Health Vault, and that that in cha- changed a bit about the way that you interacted with your care and also how others saw you. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's funny. Yeah, it's a hysterical story because here the health system that had done just my my whole big crusade for the last 10 years uh you know my cancer year was 2007 i was diagnosed in january and my successful treatment ended in july wow. i haven't had a drop of anything since then wow. when immuno i got an early immunotherapy and when immunotherapy works it's phenomenal they didn't have to cut me open to get rid of the tumors they all just died wow. anyway that's great uh, in 2008 I was like, it was party time for Davey. You know, I didn't die. I, I didn't think I was going to see that Christmas and all that stuff. But along the way, I realized, you know, the system has a lot of perverse incentives. Uh, even the hospital that had saved my life, you know, they have money pressures. The doctors, even back then, are being constantly pressured to do more with less and so on, which I just think is really not fair. So I just kept asking questions. And then I realized I would really like it if I could get all my data, all my medical information from the different doctors I've seen in one place in exactly the same way that Quicken or Mint.com pulls together all my money information from credit cards and banks and everything. And then there was this announcement that Google had announced this thing called Google Health, where they said they would do exactly that. And amazingly, my hospital, Beth Israel Deaconess, said, we're the first ones to be able to do that. So I poked the button, and what came across was garbage. Interesting. False medication warning. I mean, how could it be? that the hospital that had saved my life could have crazy computer people. They had released this software for everyone to use without ever checking it on real patient data. But but was the software the problem, or was it that your documentation was wrong? Well, no, this was, it was the two things. First of all, they correctly knew that it would be really hard to send Google the piles and piles of papers just plain paragraph after paragraph of my whole cancer history. So they thought, instead, what will be simpler is if we just send Dave's insurance billing record. Uh, Now, people who know about insurance billing records know that this is insanity. Hmm. There's inflated charges, and it doesn't contain any of the clinical detail. And can be inaccurate. And and it's incomplete and inaccurate and everything. And then they wouldn't give me a straight answer about why this had happened. At one point, the CIO of the hospital said, 5,000 other people have clicked the button and nobody else has complained. Hmm. So, So I blogged about it. And the Boston Globe called and said, we think this is important. They put it on page one of the Globe. <laughs> and well. it's, it was just like falling down Alice's rabbit hole. Uh, and one thing led to another. And by that summer, I was testifying in Washington at, at meetings about patient access to the medical record. And That's how you became e-patient, Dave? Uh, absolutely. Well, who, who first called you e-patient, Dave? Well, I did. Oh. So in 2008, when I started learning about healthcare after it had saved my life, yeah. 
Um, my doctor, Danny Sands, is one of the pioneers of the e-patient movement all the way back to the 1990s. And he told me about this and I started reading about it and I thought, holy cow, how could I have gone through this year being an e-patient, engaged, right? Yeah. Without knowing it had a name. And so I had a blog called The New Life of Patient Dave, and I just renamed it The New Life of E-Patient Dave. <laughs> Where'd you blog it? It was, it was on Blogger, Blogspot. Oh, wow. Um, and I just started blogging about healthcare and my hobby of barbershop quartet singing and anything I wanted to, because I wasn't dead, you know? Hmm. And, and then, so I had this nickname, E-Patient Dave, and when I worked in marketing in my career, so I knew the value of a consistent brand. When Twitter came along, I took the name ePatient Dave. When I decided to make a business of this, I called my website epatientdave.com. What I really wanted to do, the reason I chose that name in social media, is because I wanted to spread the word about this concept. And I didn't have a marketing budget for it, so I just made it sort of like my license plate. Yeah, that was brilliant. Let me ask you a question about the patient groups. So when you were sick, you you found a lot of good information by linking with, with other patients. And I know, I've heard that from so many people, that there's wisdom that resides within these communities that's inaccessible currently to the, to the clinicians, that, that this is something that people know who have lived experience, who have actually gone through something. There's, there's a way that they understand their illness and, and their response and and a whole range of things, how to, how to manage uh, their lives that end up being useful to other people. But there's also the possibility of misinformation. How did you determine what you could trust, what, what you heard that, that was worth following and responding to, and what, was, what you needed to ignore? Because I've heard many concerns voiced about, about the, the kind of information that might be circulated by these groups and that some of it could actually lead to harm. I mean, how did you think about this and how did you determine what it was you could trust? So there are two answers to this. I want to mention them both and then I'll describe each briefly. Um, the, the first is being participatory and the other is the far more impactful question of how do we decide what information is worth trusting anywhere? Mm, right. All right. Now, the first thing is, believe it or not, and this surprises some people who think I don't need doctors, believe it or not, after I'd done my own sort of sanity check on any piece of information, I took it to my doctors and said, I found this on the internet. What do you think? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So I was actively involved. And, and how did they respond when you said, I found this on the internet? I mean, in, not to the content, but to the idea that you're now coming to them with things you're finding in other places. What was the response? <laughs> so get this. My, why did I go to the internet? Well, it turns out my primary physician said, Dave, you're an online kind of guy. I happen to know about this good kidney cancer community on this website. That website's gone. They're now on smartpatients.com. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, my doctor <laughs> sent me to the internet. Wow. Notice he didn't say, stay off the internet. He showed me where to go. That's great. Right, because, I mean, people who are telling people, don't go to the internet. I mean, I don't know what, uh, first of all, people are going anyway. But second, 
it's as if just trust me. I'm the can be the only source, and that that doesn't exactly. make sense. Yeah, and I have tremendous respect and compassion for the fact that physicians are at least, especially in the U.S., are under enormous time crunch pressure to see more patients in a limited amount of time, uh, and so. You know, any to, for any potential e-patients out there, what you don't want to do is gather a whole bunch of stuff and bring it in during your 15-minute mm. appointment. Mm. The, the thing to do is to either notify them in advance or just call in and say, look, I've found a bunch of information uh, and I want to know, I want some guidance. Now, some insurance companies will have a nurse helpline. Some physician offices will welcome it and they may have a it, it doesn't have to be in the 15-minute doctor appointment, right? Now, the other point that I mentioned, all the information that I found and that you mentioned, patients finding in medical groups, in patient groups, is beyond. It's all stuff that will never show up in a medical journal. It's just not important enough or widely used enough or peer-reviewed. Well, I would suggest it's important, but they're just not oriented toward that kind of information. Uh, true, yes. Yeah. And I mean, right now we're seeing there was just the big article in Nature last week, I think, about in rare diseases where people with the disease are sometimes becoming scientists because there just isn't enough big funding to make it a career objective for most scientists. Anyway, my point is, it turns out that in addition to the fact that there is garbage on the internet, right? and I'm fond of pointing out that I found my wife on the internet in hmm. 1999 on Match.com, well. but before I met her, I went through some suboptimal search results. Well, <laughs> there's garbage on the internet, but there's also a whole lot of garbage in the peer-reviewed literature. Yeah, for sure. So no physician, no scientific mind can point to garbage on the internet without stepping back and addressing the broader question of how do we decide what to trust in general? Because that's something that both physicians and scientists and ordinary patients can work on together. Yeah, and then should be talking about... Uh, I want to move uh, just to... Uh, I heard that you're working on a new book. What are you doing? And, and what are you trying to... What are you excited about? What are you trying to get across with the new book? Well, the new book... Is called, and some people will think this is crazy, but it's been going on for a long time. is is called Super Patients. It's patients. This is beyond e patients. All right, this is patients who extend science hmm. when medicine is out of answers. Okay, and the reason I'm working on this book, and I've, I'm at the point now where there are so many examples of this that I'm having to cut them back to fit it into at least the first book. There are so many cases where a patient without any scientific or medical training has either accomplished their own diagnosis when the doctors were stumped, and it turned out to be true, and or they've developed a treatment, you know? So you're going to profile a group of these people? That's just going to be terrific. Well, and the whole point is because the next generation that's coming up, from the moment they're trained, I would love to find a way to get this book into medical schools right, from the moment they're trained, realizes it makes no sense to keep patients away from either their health data or good information on the internet. And in fact, it's a good thing to do that. That's the purpose of the book. 
If you thought about suggestions for for medical school deans about medical school curricula, if you had a magic wand, what would you change about the way that doc- doctors are educated now? How would you change the curriculum? It's a deep question. I'd love to go into a longer discussion about it, but here's just one little thing to think about. This is all this made me giggle when I realized it. I'm sure you're very familiar with the idea of SPs, standardized patients. Yeah. All right. These are actors, you know, union actors, SAG, Screen Actors Guild actors, who are trained to act like different kinds of patients. And for any of your listeners who's never seen one work, it's remarkable. I watched a Uh, one working uh, out at Stanford a few years ago. And at one point, she's just this ordinary looking woman in there in an appointment and she started crying. And at first I thought she was upset about her work, but then I realized, no, this is an actress. Hmm. She's actually letting the medical students see what it's going to be like. And I thought, can we have some e-patient, standardized patients? Yeah. And you'd need a mixture. You'd need ones who have some really good information that's beyond what's in the literature. And you'd need some who have some pretty loopy ideas, you know, uh, because doctors today need to be trained on how to deal with both. And the other thing that I would love to get into the curriculum somehow is this issue of how do we decide what information uh, is dependable or should be questioned. Yeah, that's critically important. Well, let me ask you one other thing, which is, so you've been at this a while. You've got a remarkable story, and, and you're an inspiration to many, including me. Where, where do you think we're moving fast enough? Where do you, what's this going to look like in five or ten years? It's, it's hard to predict. I will say I have realized that for five or six years, the great bulk of my speaking career Uh, as a keynote speaker, was devoted to making the case for patient access to the medical record. And we basically won that argument. There's still a lot of grumbling, but it is no longer a big deal keynote speech subject. Hmm. People have moved on to implementation. Right. Now, I but we also, if you're going to be a social an architect of social change, you need to realize that while the, that one part of the change is it's like the early wave of a thunderstorm or something is the agreement in public. But then you have the the rest of the amoeba dragging behind, grumbling and dragging its kicking its feet in and fighting back. So we have a long way to go. And this is why I am so, 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 so committed to the movement of liberating our data, right, which came out of that whole Google Health thing back in 2009. That was the genesis of my term, my chant, give me my damn data. (laughs) Well, but the damn now is D-A-M, data about me. (laughs) If I can pull all that data together, then if I or my sick grandchild or my sick mother or whatever is not getting the care we need, we have much greater ability to try to help rather than just yelling at the system, right? You just, you really cannot delegate understanding because otherwise what you end up, if you, if you don't understand what's in all this data you pulled together, then you're pretty much going shopping with a bag of I don't know what. You know, that's well, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I think that's, 
That really is truly the beginning of tipping the balance of power. When people truly have agency over their day, they can see there's a transparency and there's the stimulus for understanding. And, and I also believe people can work together to help generate the kind of knowledge we need to fill in the gaps. I, 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 I want to say clearly that your role in this has been so important and, and that resounding plea, give me my damn data, has actually been an important rallying cry for, for the entire uh, nation, I believe, uh, to move things forward. Well, and an important part of this, I really do believe in this whole participatory medicine idea. It's not just about us grabbing control away from doctors. Doctors and nurses are overworked, burnout is an all-time high and everything. Let us help do some of the work, you know? No, I think that's a powerful message. And, and your idea that this isn't about uh, conflict, this is about teamwork and and how how we can all move forward together helping helping medicine achieve its potential absolutely it's what saved my life well i can't thank you enough this has just been a, a terrific podcast you've been so kind and generous with your time and uh we look forward to to your book and we look forward to all your future activities to help keep us moving forward thank you so much power to the people <laughs> never delegate understanding is hosted by me harlan krumholtz Produced by Daisy Massey and Cesar Carballo, and edited by Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Follow us on Twitter at, at NDU underscore podcast or email us at neverdelegateunderstanding at gmail.com. Listen for free at Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll have a new episode in two weeks. <laughs>